can be dismissed to the transformation station. As they're making their way there, if you guys would turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. Um, if you have one of the Bibles under your chairs, I don't really know where it is, but I promise you it's in there. Um, somebody want to yell out a page number? <clears throat> John chapter 4, 888. All right, easy enough. I could have looked that up and remembered it, but... Thank you. 888 in the Bible under your seat. Um, all right. Glad you guys could be here this morning. As John said, my name is Todd. Um, hopefully I've got to meet most of you guys by now. Uh, myself, my family, Jen, who's working with the kids today, uh, Leah, our daughter, and Gavin, who is one of the kids today. Um, we moved here back in July. As uh, John said, we moved to the neighborhood of Charlestown with the hope of planting a church there in, in the coming year. Uh, we were originally from Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I grew up there, went to the University of Kentucky. <clears throat> uh, spent about two years in Florida, going to the University of Florida in Gainesville. Then for the last four years, I've been living in Louisville, Kentucky before moving here. The trip to Florida sometimes seems like a little hiccup. Uh, I spent 26 years in Kentucky, but it was such an important time in our life uh, because it was when we were in Florida that God put on my heart to become a pastor and to teach the word and evangelize and disciple and plant a church. <clears throat> and as we were thinking about planting a church, uh, we thought about, you know, where are we going to go? Where are we going to uh, plant this church at? And Jen and I kind of gravitated towards the Northeast. We'd spent a lot of time in New York City and in Baltimore. And so we looked at those cities, and we looked at D.C., and we thought about Providence. And we purposely avoided looking at Boston uh, for a long time. And, and the reason we purposely avoided looking at Boston is the uh, same reason why when a couple years later we told people that that was where God was calling us to go and calling us to plant a church, uh, people who knew us and knew me kind of snickered. And, and the reason is uh, they knew, my friends and family knew, that I am a diehard Boston Red Sox fan. I have been my whole life. Uh, it's not just something that happened because we knew we were coming here. Uh, ever since I was little, watching Roger Clemens pitch in the 1990 playoffs, that's my first memory of, of following the Red Sox. Uh, and and the, the thing I tell people sometimes is, you know, I stuck with the team longer than, than Clemens did. Uh, through, you know, the late 90s with Pedro, and then Manny came, and Poppy. Uh, one of my absolute all-time worst memories is when Aaron Boone hit that home run in 2003. And I can just remember thinking how awful it was, and how it was going to be another year that we'd have to wait. And I know some of you waited much longer than I did. Um, but then 2004, 2007 this year, the championships. I've been there. I've been a Red Sox fan through all of it. And one of the questions people always ask is, why were you a Red Sox fan? I mean, did you, are you from Boston? Is your, is your family from New England? And I said, no, you know, I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. My family's from Lexington, Kentucky. But, but it was just something that happened. I, I just, you know, grew to love this team from an early age. And it didn't matter that I wasn't from here. Because, you know, the Red Sox nation knows no bounds. You go to any stadium across the country, if the Red Sox are playing, 
there are Red Sox fans there. It's not bound to a specific people or a specific place, this love for the Red Sox. And it's kind of a similar sentiment that Jesus expresses in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. Many of us are familiar with this passage, the Samaritan woman at the well. We know that Christ comes to Samaria. He meets this woman. He asks her to draw him water. He, he gives her this talk about being living water and how drinking from her, drinking from him, she will never thirst again. Uh, we know that she says, when he asks her, where's your husband? She says, I do not have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had many husbands. And even the man you live with now is not your husband. And then a lot of us, even commentators, Bible commentators say, this next passage, what we want to look at today, is kind of her trying to change the topic. She's convicted of her sin, she feels bad, and so she just wants to try and get out of this situation however she can. And yes, that might be true. She might be trying to change the topic, but what gets said here, starting in John chapter 4, verse 19, is such a profound statement. And honestly, I really feel like this is one of the most important things for us to understand as New Testament believers, one of the greatest things for us to grasp a hold of. And so if you'll read with me in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 19, (coughs) the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. (coughs) Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, (coughs) sorry, when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. (coughs) But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we see in this passage, just as my love for the Red Sox was not bound to being from a specific place or from a specific people, so Jesus says to this woman, Since he has come, since Christ has come to the world, true worship of God can now occur without constraint. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you that we can open your word. We thank you that we can worship you without constraint. And I pray that as we look at what Christ has to say to this woman, we can learn more about worship and what it means to be true worshipers and what it means to worship you fully today. I pray that you would just speak into our hearts. I pray that my words would be your words today and that you would let us hear what you have to say to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. (coughs) So, since the coming of Christ, true worship now occurs without constraint. The first thing I want us to look at here is this idea of true worship. What is this distinction between true and false worship? Well, if if you look with me in verse 22, we kind of get this idea from Christ. Christ says to her, 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. <coughs> so he says, you worship what you do not know. This woman, the worship that she has is false worship. She worships what she does not know. Why does she worship? For what reason does she worship? She worships based on tradition and untruths. False worship here comes from traditions and untruths. Look at what she says. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. The authority that she points to is her ancestors, the ones who went before, the things that have been done in the past, tradition. This woman is a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were a, a mixed race of both Jews and Gentiles. They adopted some of the Jewish religion, but not all of it. They, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and even that, they changed in places. They, they changed the Israelite history to say certain things that weren't true. And these practices and these, these lies and these kind of manipulations on the truth led them to do certain things that were false worship. Among these was worshiping on Mount Gerizim. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim, which is not where the Jews, where Jesus, were instructed to worship namely that being Jerusalem. And so she asks him this question, and she says, our fathers worship on this mountain. She talks about the false worship, and Jesus points this out to her. He says, you worship what you do not know, because her authority is flawed. Her authority is just tradition. It's just untruths that have been passed down from generation to generation. Contrast this with true worship. So Jesus says here, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, we don't want to take this to be this kind of racial superiority, right? This doesn't mean, you know, the Jews are the superior race. You know, we have all of the intelligence. We, we are so good. No, what he's saying to her is salvation is from the Jews. Revelation has been given to the Jewish people. God chose them not because they were the greatest of all nations, but he chose them to be a people for his own, and he revealed to him revealed to them the truth that became written down in the law and the prophets. He gave them the truth of how salvation was to come. He gave them the truth of how they were to worship. And so true worship was based on this revelation, was based on Scripture. And so when we worship, we shouldn't be worshiping out of traditions and untruths and things that are superstitious or handed down. We should be worshiping on things that are based on Scripture. And if we ever question it, we should turn to Scripture and see what it has to say. And so let's ask ourselves, traditions, untruths, things we feel bound to, these are false worship. What does this look like for us? What are some examples of this false worship that we might find ourselves falling into? Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to, to point out where this occurs uh, in Catholicism, a lot of people here come from Catholic backgrounds. We are surrounded by Catholic culture. And, and one of the big places in, in Catholicism where there's false worship is surrounding Mary. You know, today is the first day of Advent. Uh, last year on this day, I actually, I preached from the Magnificat, uh, the Song of Mary. And, and as you know, um, if you come from a Catholic background or even are just paying attention, Mary plays a, a huge role in Catholic worship. And yet, of Mary, there are, there are four things that they say, and three of them are, are traditions that have no basis in Scripture. The Immaculate Conception, that Mary was conceived without original sin, 
It's tradition. It's not scripture. The perpetual virginity of Mary, that she lived her whole life as a virgin, after, not just before the birth of Christ, but after, is tradition. The assumption that Mary was not, did not die, but was just assumed into heaven, is tradition. And when we begin to accept these things and, and, and these become part of our practice, as they have for many in the Catholic faith, this is false worship. And yet it's easy to sit here in a Protestant church and put down Catholics, but we do the same thing, right? We, we have the same tendencies to create false worship. <clears throat> uh, an example would be kind of this Christian karma that many of us live under, where we're like, all right, it's Sunday, I need to go to church, because if I don't, I'm going to have a bad week, right? Uh, I'm really wanting to get that promotion, or I'm really worried about my finances, and so I need to show up at church, and, and, and I need to, to tithe a little more, because if I tithe a little more, God will give me more in return, and I won't have to worry about my finances. And we do things that, that are good. It's good to be at church on Sunday, and it's good to give money into the offering. It's good to pray and to worship, but we do this sometimes expecting something in return, or on the flip side, when bad things happen, and we wonder why they happened, we blame it on the fact that we weren't so pious, that we slept in and didn't go to church, right? that we didn't do our daily devotion. And we operate under this kind of Christian karma where worship for us doesn't become this free thing that we do and we enjoy and is based in, in Scripture, but it's based on our, our guilt and our compulsion and our desire for more and more and more. So true worship versus false worship. True, true worship is based on Scripture. It's based on the truth that has been revealed to us by God. And so with that in place now, let's look at true worship. Because when Christ came, there was this radical break in what true worship looked like. And so I think it's important for us to spend some time saying, all right, true worship, what was true worship like before Jesus and what has true worship been like since Jesus? So we see <clears throat> verse 23, he says, But the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The hour is coming and is now here. He's saying there is a break here. The things that were true worship before this moment are no longer true worship from here on out. So what was true worship before that moment? Well, to think about this, I want us to think about developing what we call a theology of the temple. So we know the temple was this place where the people came and gave sacrifices to God and, and worship. But, but even bigger than that, I want us to think about the temple as the idea of God's presence, where God's presence is with his people. And if we think about the temple as being <clears throat> where God's presence is, we can go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to creation, and we see that God's presence when he made Adam and Eve, was in the garden and was with them. And man walked with God and God walked with man and he talked with them and it was free and worship occurred there. And that was the first temple. God's presence was there and man worshiped without any hindrance. <clears throat> and yet we know what happened all too quickly. We know that in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And we focus a lot on what happened because of sin. We know that when you sin and the day you sin, 
the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. We know uh, that it's saying the woman's pain and childbirth will be increased. It says uh, the man will toil in the earth his whole life trying to make a living and that, that you will die to dust you will return. We know that, but sometimes we overlook one of the most important things that happened. And that was the man and the woman were cast out of God's presence. Because of sin, because of the thing that they had did, because of the thing they had done, they had to leave the garden. This is why they put on clothes. They felt ashamed. God's presence around them was a dangerous thing now. And so they were cast out of the garden. God sent them out of the garden. He set up an angel to protect the gates so that they would not try to enter back in. And so it was, and it was like this for centuries and centuries. We have Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And after Moses leads the people out of Egypt in the Exodus, God moves to bring his presence back to his people. He does so by instituting the tabernacle. And we see all of these regulations in Exodus chapters 30 and on about the tabernacle. And then later in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, we see the institution of the temple. And this was a place where God was able to dwell among his people. We read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God came and dwelt in the tabernacle, in the temple, among his people. He wanted his presence to be there and he made it so by having them construct these structures where he could dwell, where he could live. And this was good. This was what true worship looked like. True worship was meant to happen at the tabernacle and at the temple. And yet the people sinned and they continued to sin and they continued to sin. And God warned them and warned them and warned them, but eventually their disobedience became so great that God let them be brought into captivity. He let the temple be destroyed. He let the Jews be sent into exile across the Middle East. And yet, God's presence didn't leave. Though the temple is no longer there, we are told in Ezekiel that God's presence stayed with those who were still his followers. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16 says, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations, that being the Jews who were sent into exile, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary for them for a while in the countries where they have gone. He's saying my presence is still with them. There is a desire. God has a desire to dwell with his people. That is why he created us in the garden to dwell with him. And it's because of sin, and it's only because of sin that that no longer takes place because God is a holy God. So before Christ, let's look at true worship. What is true about true worship? Before Christ, true worship occurred in a place. It occurred in the garden. It occurred in the tabernacle. It occurred in the temple. This was the way things were meant to be. This is the regulation God sent out for them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. It says, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. 
This was not a bad thing. This was not wrong. The tabernacle and the temple were the way that God commanded. If true worship is what we find in Scripture, this is what we find in Scripture. This is how true worship occurred. It was designated to occur in a place. And you see, there was a reason for this. Because the temple and the tabernacle, these were physical structures, and they had walls, and they had curtains. And those curtains and those walls served a purpose because man was still sinning, and God is still holy. And for a holy God to dwell with an unclean people is not a safe proposition. I mean, we know in the book of Exodus when when Moses wanted to see the face of God, right? God said, "Mm, not so fast, right? This won't go well for you. Let me me hide you. I can give you a glimpse, but it really, you can't fully experience me because Moses, you are a sinful man. I am a holy God. It will destroy you. And we know this to be the case also by looking in Leviticus at the, the, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It says if if the high priest enters into that most holy place, if he goes past that protection of the curtain that was put up to protect an unclean people from a holy God, if he goes past that place and he is not clean, he will die. And and we read about these traditions that the Jews had of, of tying a rope to the priest and putting bells on him so they could hear if he fell dead in the presence of God from his uncleanness. So they could drag him out because they couldn't just walk in there and pick him up and pull him out of there because then they would all die as well. Right? This was difficult. This was hard, but it was necessary because it was a sinful, unclean people and a holy, perfect God. And though he desired to dwell with them, he couldn't fully do so without protection. We also see that true worship was designated for a specific people. This is what Christ says. He says, we worship what we know for salvation comes from the Jews. Revelation was given to a specific people. The law was handed down to a specific people whom God chose. Again, this isn't about any sort of racial superiority. God chose these people. They did nothing to deserve it. And yet he gave them the law. He gave them the rules. He gave them the regulations that were necessary to follow to be able to worship him, to be able to live in his presence, to be able to be saved. True worship was designated, was constrained to a specific people. But when Christ came, everything changed. So let's think about this. God's presence. We see that God's presence occurred in the garden. God's presence was in the garden. It was in the tabernacle. It was in the temple. It was with the remnant in exile. But when Christ comes, God's presence is in him. When Jesus comes to the earth, he is the temple. This is said a number of times in the book of John. In particular, we see John chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And and so a lot of people say this right here is uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was this man, Jesus. He was the temple. The presence of God dwelt in him. And so as Jesus was incarnate on the earth, he was fully God and fully man, and the presence of God was there with him, interacting with sinners, teaching his disciples, 
This was where the presence of God dwelt during the incarnation. But Jesus died. He died on the cross. He rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And it was when he did that that he sent the Spirit of God to his followers, to believers, to dwell in them. And with that, the presence of God now dwells in us. If we confess Jesus as Lord, if we have faith in him as our Savior, we now experience the presence of God in ourselves, both individually and as a church. And the New Testament says this over and over and over again. Uh, Look in particular at Ephesians 2, verse 22. In him, you, the church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, into, into the temple. You are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's Spirit in us is his presence. And we as individuals, and, and most importantly, as the church, gathered together are the temple where God dwells, where he makes his presence known and felt in the world today. And this is, this is so amazing, but it's still not perfect, right? Because though this is great and this is better than it has ever been, there's still a day coming. There's still a day coming when Christ will return, when the creation will be made new, And at that moment, God will dwell fully without any sort of hindrance with man, with redeemed humanity, with those who have believed forever. We see in in Revelation chapter 21, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It returns to the way it was meant to be all along. God created Adam and Eve in the garden in his presence to dwell with him. And sin disrupted that. And for thousands and thousands of years, that disruption has stayed in place and and different things have gone on for God's presence to be able to dwell with man, but it'll never fully happen the way that it did in the garden until Christ returns and there's a new heavens and a new earth and then God is able to dwell with us here freely. And this is even better than in the creation because there will never be a chance for sin to disrupt that unity, that harmony, that experience of God's presence ever again. And so this is the hope. This is what we point towards. This is what we are looking forward to. And this is what true worship looks like in the New Testament. This is what true worship looks like since the coming of Christ. And so what are the consequences of this? Well, we said before, before Christ, true worship occurred in a place. But now, since Christ, true worship occurs without constraint to a physical temple. That's why Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, you don't need Mount Gerizim. You don't even need Jerusalem. Though Jerusalem was not the wrong place to worship, 
since the coming of Christ, it is no longer necessary. Why? Because we can now worship in spirit and truth. You see, the physical temple served as a shadow of the things to come, and it was never meant to last. When Jesus came, he offered himself before the presence of God with a sacrifice sufficient to forgive all sin and remove all defilement, meaning that God no longer needed the protection of the temple. There was no need for these walls and these curtains and these veils to protect a sinful people from a holy God because Christ offered a sufficient sacrifice. We read this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, starting in verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is no need for a physical temple any longer because with the sacrifice that Christ made, giving of his perfect, undefiled, sinless flesh, he made atonement for sin. He made it so that God could dwell un constrained among his people. And so true worship is not constrained to a place. True worship is also not constrained to a specific people any longer. You see verse 22, it says, you worship what you do not know, Samaritan woman. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But then the next verse, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He could have easily said, the hour is coming and is now here when the Jews will worship the Father in spirit and truth, but he doesn't. He says, you're here practicing false worship. We're here practicing true worship, but now the time has come when all people have the opportunity to be true worshipers. Because salvation is no longer constrained to people and true worship is no longer constrained to a specific people. You see, why was, it, why was it that the Jews were the only ones who had access to true worship in the Old Testament? Because they had the law. And it was the law that helped them to enter in the presence of God and to, to be there and to worship him truly. And yet, when Christ came and died, all of those sacrifices were put away. <clears throat> and we have talked about this over and over in the book of Galatians. <clears throat> There was no longer any need for physical acts to bring us closer to God. There was no longer any need to make sacrifices. There was no longer any need, as Paul tells the Galatians, to do something ritual like circumcision. Because Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to give all men access to the Father by faith. This is exactly what Paul tells the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, For through him, Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is so great. It means that we don't need these physical acts to enter before the Father. 
but it's on the sacrifice of Christ that we can enter before him. And so the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, so often we say that the greatness of the new covenant is that it's open to all men. We say that it's because there's no longer a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, right? And that is, that is true. But one of the great things about the new, to- new covenant that we oftentimes overlook is the fact that we can enter with confidence before the Father. You see, the Jews never experienced that. They never had the Spirit dwelling in them. They entered with fear and trembling, hoping that their sacrifices were worthy. They put a rope around the high priest because they weren't sure he was going to make it out. There was always this timidness to true worship in the Old Testament. But no longer. We can have confidence to enter before the throne of grace, before the Father, and seek him, and seek his mercy, and seek his grace, and seek his comfort, and seek his blessing. We can do this unconstrained. So what do we do with this now? What do we do with this reality? If we know that since the coming of Jesus, true worship occurs without constraint, it's no longer bound to a place, it's no longer bound to a people, how does that affect the way that we live? How can we more fully experience God's presence and worship him in our daily lives in light of this? Well, the first thing I want to say is don't get caught up in this myth that worship occurs at a place. We can say this and say this and say this, but we, we still sometimes do this. For one, we don't need a church as in the building, right? Where are we meeting today? We're in a, a boys and girls club. You know, for the two years before this, we're meeting in some modern, you know, dance studio, right? We don't need a church building, and, but we can get caught up in that and we can be like, oh, this is nice for a boys and girls club, but it'd be really great if we had a church and it would be great if there was a steeple. And, and I even hear this. I was talking with some people the other day and they said, wouldn't it be great if we could just put a cross on the side of our building so people would come here? Because we depend upon the place, because we think that worship is about the place, but worship isn't about the place. Worship is about the people. God's presence doesn't dwell inside the church. God's presence dwells inside the people. We also do this to ourselves, and this is just a kind of a personal pet peeve uh, when we talk about like nature. And we're like, you know, if I could really get into nature, I could experience God. If I could like go to Vermont or get up in Maine somewhere, like that's where I truly experience God. Right? When I'm in the city, when I'm sitting in traffic on I-93, you know, I just feel so far away from him. That's on you. God is no more present up in the backwoods of Maine than he is in the tunnels downtown. Right? And so that means that you are no more able to worship him there than you are here. And in fact... You're what? You're paralyzing your worship, if that's the way you think. Because how often are you able to get away? But you can worship God daily on your commute, daily when you're sitting in that traffic. Sing, pray. You know, there's all kinds of CDs and things out there where you can listen to scripture, where you can listen to people preach. This will be podcasted, as will thousands of other preachers this Sunday alone. 
Download those. Listen to them. Worship God wherever you are because it does not depend upon a place. It also does not depend upon a place in time. That means we, we don't need Sunday to worship. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't worship on Sunday. I think we should. I think we should gather together on Sundays. I think that's biblical, that we should be here. But there's this idea of kind of gathered worship versus scattered worship. We gather together on Sundays for a couple of hours to fellowship and to sing and and to hear the word preached. And yet after this, we scatter into the city, to our homes, our places of work, our schools. And we should be worshiping there as well individually, or with other believers, in community groups, in our homes, during our lunch breaks, right? This worship shouldn't just be constrained to a time, but we do that to ourselves, and we feel like, I can't wait till Sunday till I can be there in the presence of God. And we say these things to ourselves, and yet there is nothing keeping us from experiencing God at two o'clock on the morning on a Wednesday. He is there in the same way that he is here. And when we realize that and when we embrace that, we can worship him more fully. So we don't need a place to worship. And we also need to realize that worship is not constrained by our unholiness. Though we've been redeemed, we still sin. Though we've been saved and God looks at us with Christ's righteousness, when he looks at us, he sees the perfect obedience of the Son, yet we still sin. And that's a reality, and that's going to be a reality until Christ returns or we die. And we can't let our continuing to sin keep us from worshiping God. What do I mean? Well, there's kind of two sides of this. One, it means you don't have to be something to be in church on Sunday. Uh, I'm reminded of a time when I was teaching at the University of Louisville, and there was just kind of this off-the-cuff conversation about where do you go to church and whatnot. And this girl, she goes, you know, I I used to go to church, and I would really like to but you see, I'm divorced, and I'm, I'm living with my current boyfriend, and we have a kid together, and, and I just can't, I can't go to church like that. I can't, I can't go to church the way I'm living. And I don't find myself to be like a particularly prophetic person. That's not something that I, I think of myself. But I looked at her at that moment and just was compelled to say, you of all people need to be in church. Because it's in church It's when we gather together like this on Sunday that we experience fellowship. And it's when we gather together with other believers in our homes during the week that we experience this fellowship. And what does the Bible say about this? It says we can be edified. It says that we can be accountable. It says that we can have others bearing our burdens. And when we let our sin keep us from that, we miss out on the blessings of other people. We miss out on the blessings of of the redeemed that God has given us to share this moment together with. And so we need to not think that we have to have it all together to show up here on Sunday morning. We need to not think that we have to have it all together to show up in somebody's house during the week. Also, 
we need to remember that we can't avoid God by avoiding community, which again is something that we do because we sin and we know that if I show up here, somebody's going to call me on it. They know if I show up here, somebody's going to say, hey, how's your week? How's your walk? Have you been struggling? Is there anything that I can be praying about for you? And we know that if I'm in sin, I don't really want to let go of that sin. I I feel bad about it. Maybe I, I want to keep doing it. And so I avoid community because I think by avoiding community that I can avoid God and, and I can just kind of slide by undetected. And then it snowballs, right? You miss one week, you miss one meeting, you miss two, you miss three, you kind of go into hiding. What becomes of your worship when that happens? Your worship is, is hindered. Your worship is, is, is suppressed because you think that you are no longer living in the presence of a holy God. But this is a lie from Satan to hold us down, to beat us up, to keep us in bondage when we have been set free. And so we need to embrace that. We need to realize that every day that we live as believers, we have God's spirit dwelling in us. He is there with us. And we can go before him. We should not hide from him. We should not try to hide from him, I should say, because we can't. And the sooner we realize that, and the sooner we fall before our face, we fall on our face before him, the quicker our worship will be restored to the way that God desires for it to be. Since the coming of Christ, true worship now occurs without constraint. We want to embrace true worship. We want to embrace worship that doesn't occur in a place, that doesn't occur at a time, that doesn't occur to a people, but is free for all who believe. It's free for all who have experienced the life-changing power of giving your heart and your soul to Christ, to saying, I am a sinner. My unholiness has separated me from a holy God and I have been walking alone, desperate in my own sin and depravity, and I can't do this any longer. And when we, when we confess that, when we put that before God, we can have confidence that the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, the blood that he shed on our behalf, was enough and was sufficient to tear down those barriers and to give us access to the Father, and to allow us to worship fully and freely for eternity. Pray with me. Father, thank you for today. I thank you that we can gather. I thank you that your presence is here with us, that your presence is inside of us, that your Holy Spirit dwells in us. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to look forward to that day in which we can live with you without any constraint, where you dwell among us in the new heavens, in the new earth, where you wipe away every tear from every eye and there is no longer any pain or death or suffering because there is no longer any sin. Father, that is the the future that we look forward to. And God, we pray that in this moment, as we still suffer and we still struggle with our sin and we still struggle with the trials of this life, Father, 
that you would help us just to worship you more fully, that you would help us to be free of the lies and the deceit that Satan throws at us, and you would allow us to, to feel your presence in us. God, if, if we have not confessed our sins, if we have not given our lives to you, if we have not exercised faith in the perfect, sufficient, sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, I pray that you would let us to do that now, Lord. We thank you for your word and what you've revealed to us in it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.